Well, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. My name is Kevin Dunn. I'm the Public Outreach and Events Coordinator here at the Institute of World Politics. I see a lot of new faces here, so I think it would be a safe transition to briefly introduce the school, introduce the event, uh, extend a special invitation to the Foreign Policy Initiative, and then throw it over to Mr. Moira on behalf of FPI so we can get this show on the road. IWP, as I just mentioned, is a graduate school. We offer five master's degrees and 18 certificates of study. If any of you have an interest in talking further about that, feel free to speak to our admissions officers, which are available today at the duration of the conclusion of today's event, or myself after this event as well. Today's, uh, just a brief logistics note for today's event. Today's event will be counted as on the record, meaning that we will record able to describe comments to the speaker. Furthermore, I'd also like to say that the subject of today's lecture, which is Mr. J.P. Clark's, Dr. J.P. Clark's newest release, Preparing for War, the Emergence of the Modern U.S. Army in 1815 to 1917, is available for purchase out front at the conclusion of today's event, and Dr. Clark has very kindly offered to autograph books at the end. So, I want to extend, finally, a special thank you for the folks at FPI for being willing to co-host this event with IWP. Our inaugural with them, as well as our inaugural for the 2017 Public Events Series. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Without further ado, I'd like to see you over to Mr. Moyer to introduce on behalf of FPI. Thank you. Mr. Moyer? Great. Thank you, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. This is the first events at IWP. Recently created uh, Center for Military and Diplomatic History and we are delighted to have this opportunity to work together with uh, this wonderful institution. You know, one of the virtues of historians, and I could talk for a long time about this, but I'll just uh, focus on the most germane. Uh, you know, historians, unlike social scientists, tend to uh, not come to an issue with a preconceived hypothesis, and they uh, start off with the facts and see where the facts lead them. And this book today is a great example of how productive that can be. Because as you're going to hear, uh, I mean, the author, from doing the historical research, came upon information that, that made him think in new ways and actually caused him to question a lot of the conventional wisdom about how militaries uh, operate. Um, you know, we're going to hear about a lot of issues that I think have a lot of contemporary relevance. You know, this book you know, goes up to 1917, which you know, one of the hard things about bringing history to D.C. is to convince people that things before World War II actually are important. Uh, but I, th I think you'll see that this book has great relevance to the present, and a lot of the issues that he wrestles with just haven't been covered adequately, I think, in some of the future periods. So uh, I'm just going to give you a brief rundown. As, as you heard, the book is called Preparing for War, just published by Harvard University Press this month. Uh, and one of the things, too, I should mention that we wanted to do with this event is to make sure we got someone who was uh, you know, at the top of the profession so that we would get invited back and you all would come back because you had an interesting discussion. I can tell you this is uh, one of the very best books that's come out in military history in a long time. I uh, would encourage you to read it. There's also an article in Parameters that uh, called When Present Becomes Past, Military Change and Adaptation, which 
uh, does some of the uh, application of what's in the book to contemporary events, and, and uh, you can find that online. Uh, and our speaker, JP Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel J.P. Clark, is uh, a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy. Uh, he had a B.S. in Russian, German, with systems and engineering concentration. Uh, then um, wised up and moved over to history at, at Duke, where he got his M.A. and Ph.D. Uh, he is currently on active duty, has a lot of distinguished uh, tours under his belt, including teaching at the uh, academy. He uh, served in uh, Iraq, and uh, he is currently at the U.S. Army Capabilities and Integration Center, uh, working with uh, another good friend of our organization, uh, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. Uh, so we're going to... Uh, uh, Colonel Clark's got a presentation he's going to give, and then we've uh, left plenty of time for Q&A, and uh, I think uh, we're in for a great event. Colonel Clark. All right. We'll see if you're still applauding that. Um, so, uh, so first off, thank you uh, to Dr. Owens, Dean Owens, uh, um, for hosting this in the Institute of uh, World Politics. Uh, this is a, a great place to have it in the very, and as this mansion dates back to the time that is central to the book, it's a very appropriate setting for it. And then thanks to Mark for setting this up in the Center uh, for um, Military and Diplomatic History. Uh, and thanks to all of you, so some old friends from, from uh, various places coming out and hopefully some new friends as well. Um, so I'm going to give a quick uh, kind of overview of the framework so we can really get into some good discussion and hopefully have uh, uh, some back and forth. Um, so uh, I ask you just to hold the questions until then so I can kind of um, get, get the, all the, uh, the pertinent facts out. Uh, so, uh, you know, as uh, Mark said, uh, the center is all about uh, looking at and exploring the past in order to inform the present and the future. And uh, I think preparing for war hopefully uh, meets that bill because um, really what it's about, I mean, yes, it's about 1815 to 1917, but the core issue is how do armies adapt? How do military organizations adapt? Uh, which is interesting to historians, but interesting to defense practitioners as well. So um, take a look at these, uh, these images. On the top, we have the Battle of Chippewa uh, from 1814. And then uh, below that, we have uh, the Meuse-Argonne Offensive in 1918. So bookend years to, uh, to the period that's under consideration in the book. And um, if we look at these images, they do a great job of kind of contrasting some of the small unit realities. We look at you know, uh, uniforms and tactics we get a little bit of a sense for. We can see the equipment that they're using. Um, but one thing that we don't get out of these images is any sense for high command. Uh, well, actually, I should say we on the top, we do. We have General Jacob Brown leading the, uh, his division in battle. But General John J. Pershing, um, and more importantly, the many layers of staff underneath him are completely absent from the bottom picture. Now, it's not surprising that the Army decided not to commission a, a, a painting of bleary-eyed staff officers hunched over a desk and producing Annex C of some huge operations order. Doesn't necessarily get the heart pumping with pride. Um, but 
that is what uh, I want to talk about because when we look at the shift in the style of command and control, resident from you know, the gold braid, um, um, you know, resplendent uniform on the top to one that's more broadly diffused between commanders, and commanders are still important, but commanders and staffs, that is a very important shift in warfare. Um, and it's a lot more profound than mere aesthetics. Um, that shift began not long before 1918, and actually it was not complete in 1918. And so one of the most, uh, one of my favorite parts of the book is in the midst of the great war against the Germans, there is a battle within the AEF between staff officers and their commanders fighting out what it means uh, uh, to be a military professional. And happy to get into that, into questions if you like. Now, the timing of that dispute um, gives us a clue into the nature of military adaptation. Because if change was just about technological uh, you know, uh, progress, or was about organizational complexity, the army had the size and the stuff, the substance of war, that that change would have been complete by 1918. So the fact that it, there were still some lingering elements of the, uh, the, what we'll call the old professionalism um, shows that for some reason, perceptions and thoughts were lagging behind. Why? That's what we'll talk about today. Um, but let's approach that question from a slightly different angle. If you had asked at any, any, uh, any officer at any point in the history of throughout, uh, that this book covers, and they said, what is the purpose of the army in peace? They would have said, to prepare for war. That was the universal answer. Um, but what was meant by preparing to, for war changed, and hence the title. Um, so uh, the contrasting styles of command you see, or in the case of the bottom, don't see, um, before you are one manifestation of that larger change in what it meant to prepare for war. Um, but I would say that we probably, if we want to capture this, and, and Mark kind of alluded to it, uh, you know, the, the intellectual journey I lay out in the preface, um, you can't look at the army as an entity and say, why did it change? Um, historians use the shorthand of armies think or armies perceive, but in fact armies don't do any of those things, individuals do. And so the way that I uh, approach it in the book and the way we'll approach it today is actually talking about the lived experience of, of individuals. Um, which one I think is just has the methodological um, uh, virtue of it, but also it's a lot more interesting to read and so hopefully you all agree um, if you do pick up the book. Um, and uh, it's often, you know, the problem I found is I just had to get out of the way as an author and just let all the colorful personalities that, are, that were part of the army, um, you know, kind of tell the story themselves. So let's reframe the question of how do armies adapt? So it's not how we got from Chippewa to the Meuse-Argonne, but how did we get from Winfield Scott to George C. Marshall? Um, now, obviously, uh, you know, they're not necessarily representative of their time, but both were extremely talented, both were extremely committed, and yet they had very different ideas of what it was to prepare for war. And so if we can map the journey between those two kind of paragons of professionalism within their own time, we might understand uh, how armies adapt. So what was the old professionalism of, of Winfield Scott? Uh, so above all, it's centered on the individual, reflecting the belief that military command was largely a matter of character and genius. And by genius, it was more of what we would term today aptitude. Um, now, so the important thing about that is it's an inherent trait. 
Now there was a, a sense that you could refine military genius uh, through study and um, experience, but only to an extent. Uh, and there was an appreciation for technical knowledge. West Point was founded in order to teach skills of, of uh, artillery and engineering in 1802, but those were considered really an adjunct to the higher level uh, uh, bit of uh, command, which was largely a matter of genius and character. Uh, so if you said that the army could manufacture a general, uh, I'm pretty sure Winfield Scott would have thought that that was a ludicrous idea. And in fact, even several decades later in the 1880s, William T. Sherman explicitly rejected that notion. And that is uh, crucial because Sherman was about uh, as open to the idea of professional education as anybody of his time. So we see somebody who is considered an unusually thoughtful soldier for his time in 1880 still doesn't quite think that um, that is what uh, professionalism is about. So what are the logical consequences of this notion of war? Well, preparing for war, you can prepare fortifications, um, you can maintain equipment, you can drill soldiers so that they know how to follow commands and they will follow commands. But in terms of training higher level skills through staff colleges or maneuvers or things like that, there really wasn't any point. And in fact, many officers at this time argued that doing so was counterproductive. And so the kind of training that we take for granted today uh, they dismissed as sham battles and said, well, it, without the, the element of danger, it actually teaches you wrong lessons, and so better just to kind of hang out and play cards and, and maybe have some whiskey. Uh, so the result was a guild-like profession in which local commanders uh, enjoyed considerable autonomy in how they trained and fought their units. Now, the War Department was very, very prescriptive in terms of its administrative and fiscal uh, procedures that they, you had to follow. But as late as 1904, the War Department deliberately refrained from issuing guidance that might impinge on how an officer would command in, in combat. So, moving forward to the new professionalism of Marshall. So, in contrast to the individual-centered uh, professionalism, uh, it's really expertise is the key word. And so we've gone from genius to expertise. And so the professional center of gravity shifts from the individual to the institution that codified and conferred that knowledge uh, of and were the expertise. So emblematic of that was the Army War College, uh, an institution that was authorized the same year that Marshall graduated from VMI, 1901. By 1910, the president of the Army War College was boasting that he was manufacturing generals, that he was producing officers who would all think and act the same way if given the same stimulus. Now that is a notion that would have been uh, considered wrong-headed and even offensive um, just a few decades earlier. Training also changed under this new construct. In 1903, we have the first European-style maneuvers within the U.S. And um, in contrast to drill and training privates to merely follow commands like automatons, um, the focus of those first maneuvers was on generals and their staffs, and it was only secondarily on the privates and the ranks. Um, and then two years later, so 1905, the Army produced its first true doctrinal manual that prescribed principles for uh, command, and so that distinguished it from earlier drill regulations, which were just all about formations and, and commands to, to have a unit do what the commander wanted it to. 
Uh, and so implicit within doctrine is the idea that the institutions should sanction a preferred mode of fighting. And after all, doctrine and indoctrination are related words. Uh, and so there's a, a loss of individual autonomy within doctrine. So how do we get from Scott to Marshall or in the aggregate, how do we get from an army of regimental and departmental fiefs into an integrated machine with individuals describing themselves actually as cogs within a machine? There are a couple of different uh, theories about how uh, we did this. One of the first ones was uh, that of Samuel Huntington and the soldier in the state. Uh, and so Huntington argued that it was the isolation from civilian society that allowed professionalism to flourish. And two of his exemplars for that were Sherman, who we already mentioned, and then Emory Upton, who will come back into the story in a little bit. Um, now, the props of, the, of his thesis have been knocked out pretty conclusively since. People have said, no, you know, really the army was not nearly as isolated from society as Huntington uh, supposed. Uh, they also say there's a lot more continuity from the antebellum army uh, than he had uh, given it credit for. Um, but to this, I would add my minor contribution that Huntington failed to see past the rhetorical agreement uh, between Sherman and Upton, who did agree on, on many things. Uh, Upton was a protege of, of Sherman, um, such as tactics. But in terms of the professionalism, as I said, uh, the old professionalism, Sherman was an adherent where Upton was actually one of the very first ones to come up with the ideas of this, this new professionalism, that it was expertise that could be, could be taught and uh, cultivated. And um, the fact that uh, Huntington kind of grouped them together shows he wasn't really quite understanding everything that was going on. Now, there's also some other uh, theories that have held up a little bit uh, better over time. So uh, Barry Posen, um, actually, and so uh, we can kind of group these into what I would call by a shorthand, and I don't think any of the authors would, would necessarily use this, is the politicians, the generals, or the events schools. Uh, so Barry Posen kind of established the politician school uh, with the sources of military doctrine. And he argued that the inherent conservatism of military organizations meant that you needed to have an external force, uh, some, a politician coming in, might be helped uh, along by an internal uh, maverick or reformer, but really you had to overcome that from the outside because otherwise institution, military institutions wouldn't change. Uh, in winning the next war, uh, Stephen Peter Rosen contradicted that and he said, no, you know, outsiders don't have the staying power within an institution and you really need uh, some sort of senior leader who can cultivate a whole tribe of like-minded junior officers in order to really fundamentally reorient the organization. Uh, and finally, I, I, I have Theo Farrell and, and Terry Tariff's book up here, but the event school is kind of, doesn't necessarily have as quite as clear a, a uh, individual associated with it, but essentially it says that some external shock, um, whether it defeat, the emergence of a new technology, whatever it might be, uh, causes uh, military institutions to change. Now, I would say that all of these theories have merit, um, particularly when describing discrete adaptations um, that take place over relatively short periods. And in fact, there are several examples of all of these uh, within my book. Um, but even in conjunction, they do not fully explain everything. I go into the epilogue, and we can talk about why I think this in questions if you want. But Trust me for now, they don't just, they, none of these three really tell us how we got from Scott to Marshall. There's something else there. Um, 
So we can say that fundamental organizational change takes place over longer periods requires something more than politicians, generals, and events. In order for that to happen, um, just my basic premise is that long-term fundamental changes in worldview are uh, the products of an equally profound shift in the environment. When the environment changes, a new generation reflecting those new influences is born. Thus, it is important to note that generations, as I describe them, are not, it's not based off of a decade or some other you know, artificial calendar um, you know, uh, distinction. Instead, the coherence of a generation is a result of a shared context of military problems and a set of resources in the form of tools, ideas, and values that are available to uh, understand and approach those problems. Now, I should note that just because you have a shared context like we all do here today, that doesn't mean that we obviously think the same. Uh, and in fact, one of the best ways to understand a generation is to find out what they fight about. Um, you can imagine, for those of you who followed the coin debate, you know, the, the kind, of, kind of the noggle, genteel argument doesn't make any sense in any other generation. And it is something that historians in the future will write as being that is particularly specific about ours. So the generational, the, this, this context doesn't make us think the same way, but it makes us think about the same things. And what we choose to fight about tells us a lot about our own generations. Um, now, the other objection to the generational approach is typically you have the environment changes so gradually that you can't meaningfully you know, draw any distinctions. Uh, and that's true in a lot of cases. The 19th century army is not one of them uh, due to the accident of the Civil War. The Civil War was not only the most important uh, professional event in almost everybody's uh, you know, shaping their professional worldview who fought in it, but also it was an anomaly in a lot of ways from what went before and what came after. So we had this really sharp cleavage, almost like you know, the, uh, you know, that little thin layer of meteorite dust that killed the dinosaurs. And so the Civil War serves that purpose. And so we have three nice distinctions of, of generations. And then the fourth generation we'll talk about is a little bit squishier as far as it, it goes on. Um, so how do we understand this? Because, I mean, there's li literally a limitless supply of possible influences. But I say we can kind of group these into three categories that make it easier to get our, our minds wrapped around it. Um, institutions, experiences, and culture. Institutions are all the mechanisms by which a military deliberately tries to shape itself. Experiences are all those military elements that fall outside of the organizational purview, although it could be informal group norms within a regiment. Um, and then everything else is culture. And so that's, although non-military in origin, civilian norms do have important implications uh, for the military. Class attitudes can define officer enlisted relations. Uh, racial attitudes can affect the conduct of overseas operations. And ideas about the national place in the world dictate strategy. So those are all cultural things that aren't necessarily part of the military, but still affect it. Now, there is no fixed relationship between these three. So I'm not putting forth a theory um, that anyone is particularly uh, more important or they operate together in a certain way. It depends upon the context. Now I will say that typically, just by virtue of mass, experiences and culture tend to be more important. We might spend, you know, or period officers in this time 
at best had four years at West Point, and then they have a whole career of lived experience out, you know, wherever they're serving, or a lifetime of, of cultural influences. Um, but how, they, how these three come together uh, was what makes it a generation distinct. Um, but I would say that the primary analytical uh, uh, virtue of this is it allows us to differentiate deliberate efforts to change through institutions from in unintended changes, whether they come from a military or non-military source. So, almost there. Here are the four generations under discussion. So the first of these is the foundational generation, that of Winfield Scott. Um, now, so aside from West Point, there wasn't a whole lot of institutional mechanisms, and even then, most of the senior members of this generation were, were not West Pointers. They came in after the War of 1812. It wasn't until 1860 that you actually had your first West Point graduate uh, general officer. So officers learned their trade um, through informal socialization and on-the-job experience. And that worked out actually pretty well because you had small units, you had really slow promotion, which meant that you had a long time to learn your job. Uh, and even when units did come together, like in Mexico, the regulars were kept essentially segregated from uh, volunteers. So when everybody went off to war in Mexico in you know, 1846, 1847, they started you know, getting together, uh, somebody like Ulysses S. Grant was a lieutenant at the beginning, He'd been a lieutenant for several years up to that point. He did lieutenant duties throughout, and at the end of the war, he was a lieutenant. On-the-job training worked out very well. In terms of culture, antebellum society, one of the interesting things that I kind of get into in the book is, you know, the kind of this attraction to European norms, and yet at the same time, everybody hates it with the Jacksonian democracy. Of, oh, well, you know, we love the Europeans, but we hate them and we resent them, and all of that was kind of played out. So. Going to the next generation, the Civil War generation. Um, the thing that, ha that happens, obviously, is so the institutions are the same. But this does not work out so well uh, when we get into the Civil War, because suddenly you have people like Emory Upton, who I referenced earlier, graduated from West Point in May of 1861. So he was a cadet at the beginning of the war. Within about 18 months, he's a colonel commanding a regiment. And by the end of the war, He's a, a brigadier general, brevet major general, commanding a division. So OJT does not work when you're suddenly going to be jumped several uh, layers of responsibility higher than what you have during peacetime. Uh, so the experiential model breaks down. Um, and then also there's a lot of wartime volunteers who stay after uh, the war, and they have no military training whatsoever. Uh, so institutions are not that important. Now in terms of culture, this, there's a huge uh, age span in this group, and so it goes everything from the antebellum kind of influences, and then we start shading into the Gilded Age with the early stages of organizational complexity, and, um, uh, and then also uh, early professionalization movement. Now, uh, the composite generation is a strange synthesis of these uh, two earlier generations. So their daily life looked just like it did, for the most part, of the foundational generation. But yet, the Civil War expanded out the professional horizons of the officer corps. And so now, suddenly, where before, they didn't think that war was going to give them a whole lot of, you know, if you got one promotion in a war, hey, that was pretty good. Now, you have people expect that they're going to be, you know, every lieutenant a colonel, every captain a general, if war goes up. Uh, and so, which war do you prepare for? 
Uh, and so there was this divergence of opinion, and, and to, at, at Fort Leavenworth it was fought out. It was the purpose of the early Fort Leavenworth to train lieutenants, to be good lieutenants in constabulary operations, or is it to train lieutenants to be colonels in a large national war? Now, because institutions weren't very important for most of this period, it was kind of, a, excuse the pun, it was an academic uh, debate. But suddenly everything changed when Elihu Root comes in uh, in 1899 and says, hey, we're going to remake the institutions. And so the composite generation, who had been torn between these, these two um, competing threads and had never come to consensus about what it was to prepare for war, you had several different factions, they were the ones who were put in charge of implementing the root reforms. And so suddenly, all right, reform, ready, break. Everybody goes off, and it was just a mishmash. Everybody was working at cross purposes, depending upon their particular view. And so the root reforms failed to um, satisfy expectations, at least initially. So that brings us to the generation of Marshall, which I call the progressive generation. Now, even before Root, the post-frontier uh, consolidation of the army had started to make this group think a little bit more. Uh, they, they'd, they'd cohered, and they had started to focus on conventional warfare, which the acquisition of overseas territories in 1898 just kind of sped up. So all this is before Root even comes on the stage. But the most powerful influence was just the zeitgeist of the, uh, the progressive era, which was characterized by more elaborate forms of professional organization in an optimistic faith in rational organization and technocratic expertise. Thus, the new professionalism was a product of a shift in society. And so it wasn't that the army, the politicians or generals, made Marshall think the way he did. That's the way his generation thought more generally. Um, and indeed, so the root reforms, while consistent with that, that's because they were part of the exact same trend. Uh, Elihu Root was in many ways kind of the epitome of the, the, the conservative uh, uh, reform impulse in the progressive era. So, final thoughts. What can we grab, what, what can we take from this? Um, first, I'll say that significant uh, changes in an organization take a generation to, uh, to achieve. Um, now that's not necessarily all that profound. Thomas Kuhn said that basically the same thing about science in the 1960s. In science, at least, you know, the, the you know, objective-based science, if, if it takes them about a, a generation to die off and, and get replaced, um, certainly the same is probably true for soldiers. Um, but I'd offer a little bit more as far as the uh, institution's experiences and culture model. So first is any attempt to, to reform or to change an institution, so working through institutions, will inevitably uh, deviate from its course because, you know, they, you know, you can imagine one of those little, uh, uh, you know, pendulums. You push it and that's the way it's going to go, but then experiences or culture are going to kind of, are going to deviate. And so if you're changing an army, you just have to expect um, that things are going to change. But there's a corollary to this. Even if we wanted to keep things exactly the same way they are, by freezing our you know, education, our training methods, everything in place, our doctrine in place, the institution will change even if we don't want it to, because once again, experiences and culture will, will move the institution. So uh, the third aspect of that is, um, although an institution can either command nor halt change, um, it can channel the influence of experiences and culture in a more productive way. And this is a lot of uh, basically what Root had succeeded to an extent to do. 
Um, and I would submit that that humble goal should be the aim of politicians and generals who both work through institutions. So um, about two minutes left, and I will give you some other final thoughts. And some of this is what uh, had come out in the, the parameters article that Mark referenced. Um, unfortunately, uh, I think that war generations tend to be poor adapters. Um, which being a member of, of a war generation myself, uh, that doesn't augur well for, for myself or my contemporaries, um, because their cohesion is based on the past. Now, of course, individuals can adapt quicker, but when we talk about large populations, um, then uh, I, it doesn't look so good. Um, now, the interesting thing is, what, let's imagine the next generation of officers, and so probably lieutenants, cadets, still in school at this point, uh, would, I, called the nascent generation in, um, in the article. So for the sake of argument, let's assume that there's no major war in our future. Uh, hopefully not. Um, in that case, they might look something like the composite generation, where you have a lot of people who are kind of torn between different sorts of groups. And so they might lack a little bit of professional coherence about what it means to prepare for war. Now, I think the more interesting question is how they'll be shaped by culture. Because um, you know, you know, just a, a quick scan of the uh, uh, the headlines, it is entirely possible that we are on the cusp of as large a change as happened between the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. Um, political, economic, social institutions seem to be in flux. Now, whether that happens or not, um, we don't know. But if so, and there is a major shift then it will, it will inevitably write itself upon the, the professional character uh, of the army. And I should say, I use officer corps as synonymous with the profession for the 19th century. Today, whether that's true is, uh, is um, a question you could, you could talk about. So what would that look like if we have one of these major changes? So the 20th century professionalism was based in expertise through institutions. Um, schools, structured training, standardized career paths. So, but if the current culture, all of the, the combination of automation, distrust of institutions, and veneration for the 20-something hoodie-wearing tech guru who's able to succeed, and, and we venerate the fact that he or she succeeded by not going through institutions, then what does that mean for the military? Um, ironically, if pure talent seems more important than institutional socialization, then we return to a state not all that di dis uh, dissimilar to the 19th century focus on genius, only putting talent um, as opposed to uh, genius. If so, we might have the 21st century version of the political generals of the Civil War. Um, Jared Cohen of Google has written a lot uh, about how to combat the Islamic State. If we get to the point, and we're not there now, but if we get to a point where society regards anybody who's been through institutions with distrust, then that's a death knell for generals and admirals whose credibility is based on the fact that they've gone through these institutions. And we might go to something that looks a little bit more like the, uh, the old uh, um, political generals. Now, whether that happens or not, um, I, I won't say. It, it's a, the idea seems absurd to many today, but the, the one thing that I've learned is what seems absurd to one generation um, and what's a heresy very quick, or can become uh, the conventional wisdom of the next. Uh, so with that, uh, I will turn it all over to you, or, or to Mark, I don't know if you have any questions to lead off. Well, I'll start off with, uh, with one question for you, and uh, 
then we'll open it up. The, uh, you know, we happen to be at a, a time of major change in, uh, in Washington, and there's going to be a lot of new people coming in looking for new ideas. Uh, you talked a little bit here at the end about the gener generational differences in um, change. And, and as you know, and probably most of you know, uh, you know change and innovation have, are huge buzzwords right now and have been for some time in the military. Um, if someone is coming in and they're trying to get their arms around how actually we're going to change, uh, one thing you, you seem to be suggesting is that there's a big difference between I mean, the two major groups now in our military would be Gen X and Millennials. Um, could you talk a little bit more about uh, uh, how those two generations are different and how would you know, a senior leader uh, involve them? Should they, should they you know, shunt the Gen X aside as kind of hopeless and turn it all over to the Millennials or <laughs> in terms of innovation? Or, you know, how, how do you manage those two groups? No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things that I uh, struggled with when I was writing the article, and so I applied the framework to um, today's Army, and I'll show you. I'll show you. Oop. Went too far. Um, what I came up with is you have to wonder, I mean, we're, if we do have a major change, uh, a kind of a cultural you know, a schism, will the millennial tag hold up? Or in hindsight, uh, will future historians uh, offer some sort of different typology? Um, so, because uh, I think that the way that the millennials, or at least the older millennials, um, probably are part of kind of a, a chain of continuity, much like we saw within 19th century society. You know, the baby boomers to the Gen Xs to some of the millennials probably aren't that different that there's some, some continuity. And so maybe the millennials later on will be split uh, into two. Um, one bit of advice um, that I do have, uh, and this is, <laughs> I had to, uh, to step very uh, cautiously I gave an early version of the, uh, um, of, uh, the article in a talk at uh, Oxford in the Changing Character of War program there. And so it was nice that I was, uh, was allowed back into the country because we had two of a, a one three-star and one two-star from the British Army were there. And they said, we really liked your talk, but you might want to go a little bit, you know, a little bit uh, lighter on, on us oldens um, because uh, we, we, we want your career to keep on going on. Uh, but something that I had heard uh, from many people, uh, younger officers than myself, was, um, and actually Randy would, uh, has heard this as well, so Randy DeClean uh, had worked a little bit uh, within the headquarters department of the Army, and we were on a, a team together. And uh, this is when General Dempsey was, was coming in, and the big push was to regain the lost art of garrison leadership. And, and so the senior officers kept on talking about regain and restore and revitalize and all of these re, 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 re's. And all of the younger officers who we were talking to just, it just completely fell on deaf ears. And in fact, it actually was more like, you know, uh, fingernails across the chalkboard. Um, and it took me a while to figure out why, but as I was reflecting on it, 
it is really hard to communicate accurately across generational lines when for one person it's an emotional experience and for the other it's an abstraction. And so in this case, all these general officers who had grown up in the 1990s when they were battalion and brigade commanders, pivotal uh, bits of their uh, professional self-identity, they looked back on that and that was, a, that was a, a period of pride for them. They said, hey, that's, you know, we were doing a lot of good things. Yeah, did we mess some things up? For the post 9-11 uh, generation, they have this, uh, this uh, idea the 1990s is nothing but an endless round of painting rocks and mindless duty. And so when all the generals say, we're going to go back to that. And then they just, you know, they, they you know, shrieked and like, no, we don't want to go back. Because um, that's, you know, why would we ever do that? And so I think that the, whether it's just a little bit of a shift to answer your question or whether it's a huge chasm, Whatever it is, we have to realize that we're prisoners of our own experience and how younger generations, we kind of have to understand how they view the world. Not accept it, not you know, give up our own experiences, but uh, so with my generation. So what happens when we have this younger group? You know, and so we deployed, you know, uh, actually Petra and Randy and I, we're all in uh, northern Iraq together. Um, so that's, you know, so we, you know, we, we know what we, what we saw and we're, we're, that was a, a big moment for us. What about somebody who kind of has cobbled things together from what, you know, their parents said and watching the Hurt Locker and everything else like that? Iraq and Afghanistan are going to be an abstraction to this group. And so when we say the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan, we better be really, really careful because that might be something completely different than what we think we're, we're talking about, and then we'll just kind of go straight past each other. Um, although one thing I'd like to point out, um, and you know, talking about you know, Jared Cohen as being a JTF commander or whatever, um, one of the, the big things that I, I try to get across is, I'm not saying that change is gonna be for the better. Um, because it's cultural change that's coming from civilian society for reasons that are not connected to the, mil to the military. It could be for the worse. So I'm not advocating this as necessarily a brave march to complete decentralization, but the thing that we have to do is we have to realize how much we're in control of our own fate in the institutional uh, army, and it's not much. And so we just have to kind of ride, you know, ride the tiger and, and try to shift it in the best way we can rather than stopping change because we'll get run over if we try to do that. Um, any other questions? or Petra. Could be. Um, so it said um, war generations are poor adapters. So could you expand on that? What is meant by that? Because I always had this idea that um, you know over the course of our deployments as uh, captains and majors, that we really just made leaps and bounds in terms of like how we handled our coin, you know, operations. Mm. Yeah, um, so the way that, uh, actually, uh, so Adrian uh, Bonenberger, I believe is the, the name, uh, wrote an uh, article in the Washington Post, is in the Sunday edition, probably I think 2014, and he said, hey, 
get rid of all of these general officers, get rid of all the colonels and everybody else above. You know, they were trained in the Cold War period. They don't know the, the present enemy. We were there, you know, we fought um, the Taliban, we fought AQI, put us in charge, and, and, and we've shown that we can, we can do this. And, uh, and, I, and I don't think a whole lot of people would, you know, uh, dispute that. But his argument was based purely on experience. And he said, within this environment, we were superior, and so we should be put in charge, which is fine so long as we keep on fighting the Taliban and, uh, um, uh, you know, AQI, uh, now Islamic State. Uh, the problem is if we get to something that is very different. Now, like I said, across large, you know, uh, populations, the coherence comes from that shared understanding. Individuals can certainly you know, update their, their opinions, but the problem is if we all have the shared experience, let's say we all went with Task Force Marm. Now, we all might deviate from certain parts of that. We say, you know what, well, that part wasn't quite right, and I think that, you know, I'd like to change that. But the problem is that probably, unless something was really, really wrong, and that becomes part of our shared narrative of what happened, we're probably all gonna have slightly different variations of what we would do differently. And so what is the common denominator that, that you know, binds us? It's not how we would diverge from it necessarily, although that, that is possible. But more likely, we all have the kind of the same you know, uh, uh, common reference point. And so it becomes very difficult for us to act coherently as a generation because we're all kind of you know, riffing off of different things. And a lot of it, we don't even necessarily um, uh, you know, realize some of the assumptions that we, we've brought in. Uh, but I would say, you know, you know war is the, the business of the, the military profession. And so even if it's not simply uh, a matter of group dynamics, it is really hard to get away from that experience, which was what it is all about. Uh, you know, and so that becomes so much of part of your professional identity that it is really hard to, to treat that in an objective way. And even if you can make an absolute effort to do so, it's hard to separate something that you felt in the most visceral sort of way, which war is, versus something that's an abstraction. And so an example of this uh, that I cite in the article, uh, one of the RAND researchers had gone over and it to a TRADOC uh, war game. They're talking about North Korea. And so they had brought in, it, under the assumption, hey, these, these are the combat-proven you know, young captains and majors. Let's get the best and brightest people who the division commander nominates, we'll bring them in and we'll just, you know, we'll unleash them and all of their combat experience on this problem. The problem was North Korea. And the group kept on talking about IEDs. If in North Korea, our biggest problem is IEDs, then we are having the world's best, you know, day. I mean, that is awesome. Uh, and it's not that these people didn't, you know, understand the scenario, hadn't been brought in. It was like a two-week, you know, kind of immersion sort of thing. But if you got blowed up by an IED, yeah, you're going to pay attention to that. Where massed artillery or, uh, you know, some sort of, you know, mass infantry assault, that's an abstraction. And so it's really hard to weigh an abstraction versus uh, something that you experience in the most visceral way. Mm -hmm. David Kilcullen, I believe, wrote a book uh, 
basically to the effect of arguing that the military should share its pie of expertise, so to speak, with mm. the broader, say, intel community or even um, non-government actors and organizations. My question to you in building off uh, this lady's question is, if every one of those actors in this ostensible pie of expertise starts invoking the claim of expertise, and yet, as you said, they have different perspectives about what should be what should be done, is this going to be a dynamic that will cause a lot of tension between, say, the military and civilian leaders going forward? Boy, that is a great question. Um, now, and so in in that sense, uh, so while, while certainly the Webster's uh, version. Um, of Kilcullen's statement would go, I would actually would call what he's referring to there as experience rather than expertise. Um, but I, I think that, uh, I'll play it both ways real quick, and I think either one gets to, to a very good point. So the experience, um, boy, it becomes difficult to replicate that. And like I said, there's an emotional human component to this of, hey, you know, we were there, we saw this. And so uh, I think that, you know, as a lot of people, um, talk about you know, the, the, the small sliver of uh, American society that has served, um, you know, boy, you know, that, that could be very dangerous. Um, at least for a while, um, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of folks who may, weren't necessarily in uniform, but you know, there's a whole lot of former PRT chiefs and everything else like that that are gonna be rattling around the halls of Foggy Bottom for a while. And so I think that actually, in, in that sense, we probably have uh, at least a certain constituency within state and USAID and other places where we actually probably have a very sound basis for at least an emotional attachment. Hopefully we don't get transported into some other environment that all of our, our experiences are OBE. Uh, now as far as the expertise, which, and so the key part for that for me, and so this is I'm being pedantic about my, my definition, you don't have to accept it, you know, but the key thing is, you know, that Marshall and everybody else saw that, you know, you had, you know, you had to go to the war college. You know, you had to go through all these. You couldn't be a general until you've, command, you've been a colonel and you, you've gone through all of these sorts of steps. Uh, and uh, I do worry if, if either, um, as I said, you know, perhaps just the, the cultural shift People won't think that those institutions have value, and so they won't, they won't accept our expertise. Um, you know, it is not an accident that the whole notion of political generals went away as soon as the you know, officer corps started developing things like war colleges. Because now civilians could look at it and they could say, oh, okay, there is something that you know, the local banker or the local lawyer hasn't had, and so I should probably let, you know, I should leave the warfare to the experts. Um, if those, if institutions in general are viewed with suspicion, then we're in trouble. But the other thing is, if we allow our institutions to become obsolete and they no longer are serving the purpose, even though society might want to put the generals and the admirals in charge, if we're, if we're creating an expertise that is not relevant to the, the modern world, then I think you get to the same sort of problem. And if, if, case, if that's the case, rightly so. Uh, does that answer the question? Yes. Okay. Uh, Randy. Um, that is, that is a, 
great uh, question. Um, trying to think if I, so there's been some interesting bits about how uh, um, kind of perceptions of the war changed over time, you know, and then you start having, you know, you know, you know, Sherman going up in front of, I think it was like 1873, War is Hell Boys and, you know, the Army of Cumberland, you know, reunion. And then by the 1880s and 1890s, then the sepia tones start coming in and everybody remembers how, you know, they all went over the top and they were all carrying the, you know, the, the colors somehow. And then everything, you know, became um, very different. Uh, so I would say on an individual basis, the, the time period aside, it, it probably cemented a little bit more um, just because it was such a horrific experience. Uh, and so uh, one of the other interesting aspects of the book is talking about, so the young West Pointer of, you know, class of 1868. And uh, so the officer corps was stratified. You had some of these pre-war regulars who were still frozen in the top. Even the guys who weren't very good, like Ambrose Burnside and um, you know, Pope and some of these other you know, leaders were at the top. And then you had some of the, uh, the really outstanding citizen soldiers, the wartime volunteers, guys like Nelson Miles, who are kind of in between. Then you have kind of the run of the mill. And at the bottom, you have these guys who were just, you know, they came in as volunteers. Some of them were illiterate. Um, and all they have is that wartime experience. That is the sum basis of their professional identity. And then you have these young West Pointers who come up and, and promotion just completely stagnates because you have all these young guys at the top and they're not dying and they're not retiring. And so you have, uh, you know, one case I can think of a first lieutenant who had served in Antietam and been wounded at Antietam 20 years before and the guy's still a first lieutenant and has no hope of, of, you know, he'll make captain another five years and then he'll retire. And then you have these young, you know, West Pointers, 10, 15 years younger, who have all they have is book learning. And it's a really strange dynamic at these small frontier posts where you only have three or four officers sometimes. And so, you know, how do you deal as the 25-year-old who has book learning with the illiterate guy who was wounded 20 years before um, and it, a lot of it depended upon personality. Um, you know, the one who I'm thinking of was actually was very kindly and he kind of, you know, showed the young guys the ways. Other ones were, you know, just kind of dug into an anti-intellectualism like, hey, you know, <laughs> you know, when, you know, my best friends were splattered over my face, so what can you tell me, whippersnapper sort of attitude. Um, but uh, it would be hard to make a generalization, but I would love to know what the answer was. That's a great, great question. Sir. Um, it was an element of um, uh, pure careerism. 
That is a great question. Um, and this is one of the, the, the key bits that kind of separates the old professionalism from the new professionalism. Um, and not necessarily, you know, there's, there's goods and bads to each. So um, there's two, two threads to it. The first is there were some choice jobs. And so one of the themes that, I, that kind of goes throughout the book is how the elite, the anointed, you know, sorts of, you know, the, the sons of, you know, generals or, uh, um, you know, sons-in-laws of senators like Pershing, you know, how those people who ended up doing jobs, you know, here in Washington, which was a very sought after thing as opposed to being out at, you know, uh, Fort Huachuca, uh, where you couldn't even write during the daytime because the, 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 the ink would dry as you, before you got done. Um, so there was, you know, some back and forth for, um, comfortable or desirable jobs. Uh, but there wasn't careerism because of, uh, in the sense that we think of today, because of uh, promotion by seniority. And so when I say that you had this guild-like profession, and this was one of the first things that really knocked me off of my, you know, the notion that I, I thought, because this began many years ago as I was, I was looking at reformers and conservatives. And so I was looking for some sort of marker in whether it's you know, West Point class or you know, combat experience or branch. And so what made people reformers or uh, conservatives? And there's all of these people who were very, who I regarded as reformers, but they were dead set that you only wanted to have promotion by seniority. And I couldn't square this because everybody talked about how bad it was. Uh, um, typically, it would only come up when you came up for promotion, which was very, very rarely, that you would have a medical exam. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a one-legged cavalryman, which makes it very hard to ride a, a, a horse in combat. And, you know, infantrymen who could only wear slippers and they could just, you know, putter around, um, you know, the headquarters and they couldn't go out uh, onto campaign. Uh, and so everybody knew all of these horrible things about it and people were drunk. There was one colonel when all, he spent all of his time um, making violins, like the only duty he would do during the day is they would bring him the muster roll, he would sign it, and then he would make violins for the rest of the day. And so there's all of, because it was just, you know, there was no incentive, obviously. Um, you just waited in line, and then whether you were, you know, a star or whether you were the worst, you were going to come up when your time came up. But everybody kept on fighting to keep promotion by seniority. And I couldn't figure out why this was. And the reason why is because under the old professionalism, if it's all about character, which can only really be revealed in combat, they said there's absolutely no way that we can tell the worth of an officer except for when we put them up in front of a regiment and then they do either really well or they do really poorly. And it's not about expertise, and so we, if we can give them a test, but all that means is that they can memorize the drill book. There's no way to tell in, in peacetime what you're, whether you're good at your job or not. So we just have to, during peace, because everybody was trying to get around the system by having their father-in-law write a letter, they said, let's just make it fair. And so only when you actually got to the point that the institution thought that it could create expertise, did the institution start thinking, oh, well, I can then grade whether officers actually are, are good at what they are, you know, whether they have merit or not. And so at that point, then you start getting um, a promotion by, uh, by merit 
uh, and then that kind of, and then that opens up a whole field much more than you know the ten you know really um, you know cushy jobs you know at the, the the department headquarters in San Francisco or something like that. Um, but people were worried about careers, careerism, and so they said let's 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 keep the bad system we have of promotion by seniority rather than opening up the door to careerism in that sense. Um, so that's 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 an interesting bit and. In some ways, I can kind of see where they were coming from. Um, I, I don't know whether I would take the bad of promotion by seniority in exchange, but something to be said for it. Yes, uh, <clears throat> to me at least, this is a question that has to do with post-1917, with the recent second half of the 20th century and current situation. Is that fair to ask? Yes, please. Uh, I would think that the greatest failure of adaptability, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not absolutely convinced, is the inability of the American military culture, strategic culture, to, uh, to convert to counterinsurgency or to insurgency, uh, mm. which has been, again, you can tell me whether I'm on the right track, which has been a generational problem. You know, a country that can defeat Germany and Japan simultaneously in four years, <laughs> and the Kaiser in mm. four months, cannot arrest guerrillas in Southeast Asia in 20 years. Been fighting terrorism for decades of unconventional nature. Is this a, am I right that this is a failure of adaptability? Hmm. Number two, if it is correct, is it cultural ingrained or is it institutional or educational? Because I don't have the answer, but I have written a book on it called Chasing Ghosts, but the book ends with the Vietnam War, and it doesn't address the current situation. I believe it's a failure of adaptability, but I'd like to have your, uh, your Yeah, no, that is a great question. Um, and I, actually, I would, I would uh, I'll toss it over to Mark, who is a um, distinguished Vietnam historian, uh, for his, his thoughts. Uh, and so um, we can certainly ask the question, my level of expertise on it is, uh, um, you should take with a grain of salt. Um, well, I won't do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so actually, and so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll plug a book from a friend. Brian Lynn uh, just came out with a book uh, about six months ago uh, called Elvis's Army. And he, it's a great, great uh, kind of survey. And I think he, you, you all had him come and yes. do an event. Yeah. Um, Great survey of the army between Korea and, Viet and the beginning of, of Vietnam. And uh, one thing that I think that Brian does particularly well is he kind of brings out, um, institutionally there was an overwhelming bit of insecurity in the army that was a, a holdover from the Eisenhower uh, you know, uh, period. Um, and the new look and the, and the very traumatic, you know, cuts that, you know, took place. And so when Kennedy came in, um, you know, really there was, for a while everybody was talking about atomic. I mean, it was atomic everything, atomic field kitchens. And, you know, I mean, just, you know, I mean, everything was atomic. And then for a while when Kennedy came in, actually there was a whole lot of, uh, you know, coin. Now, was it the coin that the army wanted to imagine? and the reality was something different and they didn't quite get you know, onto that? Or did people then start kind of, um, uh, you know, when, when they started looking at it, they said, ooh, boy, I'm kind of, un, you know, kind of uncomfortable with this. 
Um, you know, I'm thinking of some of Greg Dadis's work uh, where he says, well, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't quite so much the caricature of, you know, and particularly with Westmoreland, he kind of, you know, uh, uh, revises his, uh, his reputation a little bit and says, well, you know, there was, there was some big unit NBA guys who were running around. And so there was a valid reason to be a little bit uh, in terms of the conventional warfare. Um, but I, I, I get the sense that probably there was a little bit of hesitancy to embrace the reality on the ground, um, even with those caveats aside of there were people who were into uh, um, uh, coin uh, and there were, um, there were some good reasons not to. But Mark, I mean, I don't know, what's, uh, what's your considered opinion on the subject? Uh, well, I'll just touch on something that actually I found one of the interesting points in your book that hasn't come up yet. Um, I mean, my own view is that the military is better at adapting than a lot of times to get prepared for, but I do, and I've written about this, I think the Marine Corps has typically been better than the Army at doing this. Um, and one of the reasons, a big reason why is that the Army was bigger and has traditionally been more standardized. And actually in your book, you talk about this, uh, and some of this was new to me. Um, but when, um, it's very interesting, you talk about how there's this push in the progressive area towards more standardization. And so uh, when you have a standardized problem, that works great. But in the process of doing that, if you come to counterinsurgency and it's not the standard problem, I think that's where you run into mm. trouble. So, and I think, uh, I'm, be great if someone could follow up from between 1917 up to Vietnam, looking more uh, directly into that that uh, issue. But um, it, the the whole question of how did this progressive impulse, how is it still with us today, um, in how we deal? And I still think you see between Army and Marine Corps differences in uh, the, the the whole question. I think the Marine Corps being closer to what you call the old professionalism, even you know, mm. still. I mean, the the, the Army is. Um, I think we'd be yearning for more of that, but um, do you still, do you think today's, I should ask you, do you think today's army is clo is closer to the new professionalism still? Yeah, no, I think that the, the that certainly holds, um, and talking to an army audience tomorrow, I'll be interested to know whether they have, you know, any sort of pushback. Um, some people who I've, you know, discussed this with, they said, well, no, 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 I mean, it's, you know, the individual is very important, you know, of course, you know, it's not just all about, you know, what the, the army taught us. But then you say, okay, so could we imagine, as Adrian Bonerberger said in his Washington Post, we should have somebody go straight from major to major general and command a division. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to go through all the, the steps. Well, how about we have somebody who's have a military intelligence officer command a, uh, a division. Oh, no, 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 it only has to be, and so I don't think people realize how much we have this very standardized notion of what it takes in order to have the expertise to command. And some of those, some of those notions have a lot of, a lot of validity to them. Um, but uh, I think that we are very lockstep, and I would, would hope that we take a good hard look at what those sorts of things are, because I think we've become too much. And a, a, a good example that actually the chief of staff used in something that he was fixing was a, a military intelligence officer. Uh, he was like seconded over to a DIA or some intelligence agency. He spoke um, the, the, the language of interest 
and, but it wasn't a official army job. And so they wanted to take him to Fort Huachuca and put him in command, uh, administrative company that was overwatching a whole bunch of students because that's what it took in order to be, you know, a major within military intelligence. And I think it was like, and it, it was over the top sort of uh, scenario. He was also a Rhodes Scholar or something. So, and he goes, all right, army, I'm done with it. Um, and so, you know, that is an extreme example of the sort of kind of typecasting where sometimes we, uh, what is most administratively easy becomes our markers rather than something more fundamental. The, um, I, I know it was last year or so, the um, um, sec that for somebody came up with the brilliant idea to bring in field grade people from the outside and give them field grade rank. Did that ever catch hold or that, that hopefully that's a dead issue? You know, bring in some guy who's, you know, 40 years old in the, some field and bring him in as a major like colonel. The, uh, I remember reading that, this was sort of dumbfounded. The, um, did that catch hold at all? Uh, there, it, it's still um, moving forward a little bit. Uh, the real driving force behind that was a guy named Brad Carson, uh, who was an acting undersecretary for uh, personnel and readiness. And, uh, and he was not confirmed. Uh, and so uh, the, um, my understanding of the gossip is that a lot of the service chiefs were kind of sticking the, uh, the knife in and, and uh, he and McCain did not get along well. Um, uh, so, but the specific idea is uh, if we're going to be doing some of these very technical jobs, and so it was, it was bounded, if we're going to have somebody coming in and doing an I.O. campaign, then we should probably get somebody who knows a little bit about you know, information operations. Um, and there is you know, some merit in that, and also you know, very technical sorts of things. Like let's get a Googler to come in in order to set up our, our network and then also perhaps to attack other networks and you know, things like that. You can't grow your own? Well, um, we tend to do stupid things when we do that. Um, in, in like, you know, well, you have to go off and do this other sort of thing because that's what everybody else does. And so we tend to make it into the stovepipe. Um, and actually, so I, was, I just got done being an exchange officer with the British Army, and, um, which is actually slightly smaller than the Marine Corps. And I think there's a lot to be said, and I, I should have made this point with your question. When you get a little bit smaller, then it becomes a little, you, you don't have the luxury of quite being so doctrinaire and pedantic. And so um, they tend to be able to cultivate and say, you know what, you can go off and do this non-standard job. And that's okay. We recognize that this, is, this really feeds back in where the Army as an institution, if it's not legible to the personnel system in some sort of you know, code, then, then it's death. Um, so uh, we have a hard time with that. But then also the thing is, you know, if somebody is just defending our network, do they have to understand combined arms maneuver? Uh, I mean, I can make a case that it's a nice thing to have. And so this becomes an interesting point of how much specialty and how much generality do you need for different functions? Um, if all they are doing is just a purely technical function, if the fact that they don't you know, understand a lot of the rest of the army stuff, like our docs. I mean, we don't make you know, docs you know, surgeons do, you know, all these things. We want them to just be good at the surgeon stuff. And, uh, um, you know, we let them go from there. 
it's a fine line. Um, I don't know necessarily that I have a, a considered opinion upon where it should go, but I understand where they were going with it. Um, you know, but as I, I said, if um, you start getting into a slippery slope where if you bring somebody in and all they're going to do is the network, and then we have Jared Cohen, who's, you know, from Google, who's, you know, and he actually was the head of their kind of, um, you know, research and kind of blue sky thinking arm. And if somebody who is good at manipulating opinion, and we're talking about a, uh, some sort of campaign that's only 10% kinetic and 90% about public opinion, uh, you can kind of see where somebody would make the argument, well, maybe he's the one who's more, uh, you know, best, suit for, best suited for that. As, the, as a military person, would I say that we should give up, you know, control of violence? No. Um, but we have to be good at our jobs in order to be able to do that. But actually, um, a good friend of mine, uh, uh, Major General, so Major General Tony Kukulo was my boss, and he had been the Chief of Public Affairs, and he could not find anybody who would, had any modicum of talent within our public affairs career field, because it wasn't, it wasn't infantry, armor, you know, all these other sorts of things. Well, and so actually, and so we've gone to a point where they just kind of go off. And then like, so the, our one guy, he was just tired of flying helicopters. And so I said, oh, okay, I'm just going to, you know, do something that looks easy. The other guy, <laughs> his deputy had been too lazy to put in his preference sheet. So he thought he was going to stay an infantryman. And they just kind of forced him over into the public affairs field. Uh, and so uh, one of the most talented uh, communicators who I've had the, the privilege of working with, General Kukulo, brought him in. Um, on a special contract and had him do uh, all of our work uh, over in Iraq. Um, and this person had, I mean, served within, you know, Cheney's office uh, when he was the vice president, um, had served the, the secretary of the army before this. And so this is a high-powered sort of guy who, are, are we going to be able to get somebody like that? Are we going to be able to grow him in enough numbers within the army now, you could say public affairs, flax, you know, that's a soft skill, that that's not core military. Um, but, you know, there, there's, there's a fine line, and like I said, I don't have a, a considered opinion about where it might be, or contract management, another one, real estate management. Do we need to have a three-star who just commanded a division overseeing billions of dollars of real estate? You can make a case for it. He understands soldiers, he understands, you know, the, the, the mission. But also, maybe if we can get somebody from CBRE who can actually save us, you know, 10 billion, okay, we'll take him and then, you know, or her, um, and then we'll, we'll reinvest the money somewhere else. We have time for one last question, sir. Vic. Sir, so uh, thanks very much for your comments. Um, so bottom line question is, how do you see the Army adapting over the next 10 to 20 years? I mean, I think one of the mistakes that we see throughout history is the Army or the military continues to adapt to the last war. I know a few years ago before ISIS uh, really started picking up, and as we were pulling out of Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a lot of talk of, hey, we're going to adapt to this hybrid threat. We're going to be able to fight a conventional enemy like North Korea and an asymmetric enemy wherever that pops off. So what do you realistically see happening based on you know, all the experience that the long war generation has, uh, mm -hmm. maybe some of the innovative mindset that this nascent generation will bring in? Yeah. Um. 
it will be very interesting to see what, what everybody makes sense of the last, you know, decade or two. You know, as kind of been with the Civil War generation, you know, their understanding of what they had lived through kind of evolved over time. Uh, I think a lot of the way that goes will be what kind of narrative takes place in our minds. And um, I think that that's still to be written. You know, what happens if a rock just completely goes to pieces? What was that all about then? You know, how do we then regard our service over there or Afghanistan? Um, versus, hey, if things kind of turn out, then I think that that kind of, you know, the institution can tell, some, you know, can tell itself a different story about the way it goes. Um, and even if we remain steadfast, and it's, 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 it's incredible to think, as we were talking before, how quickly our time is coming up. Uh, we've become them, and pretty soon we'll become, you know, the past tense. Uh, you know, um, but just as, you know, the post 9-11 crowd was really kind of um, reacting to the, the, a caricature of the 1990s. I know growing up in the, in, the, in the 1990s army, as a tanker, I was always thinking about, you know, this, you know, this, this supposed golden era and, you know, guarding the IGB and, you know, tanks ready to roll out and, you know, kill five before you die sort of stuff. Um, and so I think that to a certain extent, the way that generations react is in opposition to the way they imagine what came before, um, which may or may not be correct. I mean, uh, well, certainly not entirely correct. It's going to be something of a caricature. Um, but uh, we'll see what the next generation makes out of what we did. Uh, hopefully they're kind to us. Great. Well, yeah. I'd like to thank you for this great presentation. Again, recommend this book. And the last question again raised, we tend to think about the most recent war uh, if we want to avoid the, the trap of getting too wrapped up in our own past. Reading something like this would be invaluable. And this is, uh, uh, I think, a book you will be hearing a lot about. It's been, when was the actual publication date? Just the last uh, week? Yeah, the second, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so you are among the first to hear about this, and we will be hearing about it, I'm sure, for years to come. So if you could uh, join me in a round of applause for our speaker. <laughs> Uh, you'd be happy to sign one for you. All right. Thank you all for coming. It was it was a real fun. Uh, it was a blast. So thanks.